You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith Radio. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney. And in this season of the holidays, I bring you good tidings in the form of an announcement. Uh, My trusty co-host, Ben Triplett, who has been on pre-paternity leave, now has a son. Yes, this last week, Deacon Elm Triplett was born. He is healthy. Everything is well. Uh, with father, mother, and child. So we just want to give a shout out and a congratulations to Ben. So now let's hop into the show. Uh, This show is going to center around the book Divine Dance that was written by Richard Rohr and Mike Morrell. So without further ado, here's the interview with Mike Morrell. So joining me here today is Mike Morrell. Mike um, is an American intelligence analyst. He served as a deputy director... (laughs) for the Central Intelligence Agency, as well as an acting director twice, first in 2011 and then from 2012 to 2013. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Mike. And my biggest question Uh, is, how does a guy that's in the CIA end up writing a book about the Trinity? Well, if I I told you, I'd have to kill you, Stuart. (laughs) (laughs) We we would call it uh, Extraordinary Rendition. Yes. No, I, so I'm, I'm totally kidding about that. Yes, there is another Mike Morrell out there that works for the CIA, which is funny. When I was looking up the bio stuff on it, uh, that guy popped up and I was like, that's not the Mike I know. Um, <laughs> unless he's aged horribly uh, in like the past while since I've seen you. <laughs> it's my well-kept secret. It is. It is. No, no. So, so Mike, a uh, little bit of your bio. Mike is a communications director uh, for the Institute. Is it integral or integral uh, theology? I, I say integral, but, you know, it's maybe a potato, potato thing. Maybe. maybe. I don't pronounce things right all the way, so I'll probably go with your rendition. So, yes, so you, you're communications director with Presence International. You're co-founder of the Buzz Seminar and founding organizer of the Wild Goose Festival. Um, it is wonderful to have you here today. And so when we begin to talk about your book, The Divine Dance, that you wrote with Richard Rohr. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first question for this whole thing is, how did this even come about? How does one track down Richard Rohr? He seems like an elusive character, uh, like Bigfoot or something of that nature. <laughs> I think there are considerably more uh, sightings of Father Richard than there are of the Yeti. But okay. uh, it's true. One one doesn't normally just uh, ring him up. You know, I've, I got to know Father Richard over the past decade due to some things I was involved in. Years ago, I worked with Spencer Burke of the ooze.com, mm-hmm. which was a clearinghouse for postmodern Christianity conversation back in the day before social media was fully a thing. The ooze served as a place where people posted articles, had a very rockin' message board. And we had this semi-annual gathering called Solarize, a learning party. And at Solarize, I would actually say it was one of the early Solarizes, like maybe 2001, where Spencer introduced Richard to a lot of progressive evangelicals. Hmm. Um, you know, Spencer is a Thomas Merton enthusiast. He was into contemplative prayer before it was cool and, uh, you know, kind of brought 
Richard, into the um, awareness I know of me and a lot of other kind of young evangelical leaders, as well as folks like Brian McLaren. And so there was that connection, and we had him out. Uh, the last time we had him out was at SolarEyes 2007, which, gosh, that's nearly 10 years ago, in the Bahamas. Uh, oh. We were we were <laughs> suffering for the Lord, and uh, <laughs> it was yeah, it was this all star lineup. We had uh, we had Father Richard, we had Brennan Manning, N.T. Wright, Rita Brock, who just released this amazing church history book at that time called Saving Paradise. Uh, Michael Dowd from Thank God for Evolution. And because the passport laws had just changed at that time, uh, suddenly people needed a passport to travel to the Bahamas. Not nearly as many people uh, were able to make it out as we had anticipated. So it was an intimate gathering of about 100 people with all of these luminaries. And, um, and some of us who organized the event got to have a private uh, mini retreat with hmm. Father Richard afterward, where he taught us the Enneagram and did let us in certain exercises. So that was really special. And then when I helped start the Wild Goose Festival, we also had him out at the first several of those. He was a you know big supporter and the Center for Action and Contemplation continues to be a big supporter of the festival. So you know, with that background with him and also with a background in publishing, I was approached by my good friend Don Milam, who is an acquisitions editor at Whitaker House, actually a charismatic publishing house, who really wanted to publish him. And I knew of a couple of conferences that he did, that Father Richard did nearly a dozen years ago on the Trinity that I thought were interesting and that could make the adaptation to book form. And so we talked, and to my delight, he agreed to let me have a crack at them, uh, translating those from spoken form to written form. And it ended up being a rather collaborative process with uh, with him being more involved in the project than, than I initially anticipated. And we were able to create The Divine Dance. Well, it is. This is a book that I think is really hit a nerve, um, a good one uh, in culture, <laughs> because, I mean, it is it's selling. I think. Have you been surprised at the, at the book sales so far? It's, it's been it's been really pleasant to see just how much it's resonating with folks, for sure. Because I remember I had when when you first like mentioned doing this book, I went on Amazon and I pre-ordered it, and then I oh, got wow. I got the, I well uh, there's more, and so with that um, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and other people I know have gotten their books, and I'm like what? And so I go on Amazon and they like they send me a message that oh uh, they had run out of all the pre-order <laughs> books, and I'm like that isn't this why I pre-order things? Uh, no, eventually, yes, got the book, went through it, and have really enjoyed it. It's one of those books that, uh, like for the interview, I will read it through fast, but it's one of those things I probably need to go back and let it seep into my soul more as I'm going mm. through this, you know, because it's not simply something that that you're reading for facts. Um, you're also kind of reading and letting it move you um, in the Indeed. process, and so I'm I'm looking forward to going through it again. Um, uh, as I have time to kind of let my soul digest a lot of that. And so this book, uh, The Divine Dance, is centered around, you know, really re, re I guess, re-talking about the Trinity or putting different words to how we talk about the Trinity. And so, like, just, I wanted to ask you this, and this is still part of the book, but, you know, ultimately, like, why does the Trinity matter 
And like, what, what is its relevance like to Christians on like a day-to-day manner? Because, you know, as like, you know, you guys have in the book, oftentimes, you know, in a lot of people's Christian walks, if you were to just pretty much take out any theology that's involving the Trinity, Mm -hmm. everything would seem the same in in a lot of ways. Um, It shouldn't, but I think in Mm -hmm. a lot of people's lives it does. And so, yeah, so why, why, tell me why this matters. Sure. I, I think, you know, the short answer to that is that our images of God matter, that we become what we behold. Hmm. And I think when we study American civil religion, I think that it kind of gravitates toward two poles. And both of these have a sort of uh, monad God, a sort of Unitarian God. One of them is this very uh, Zeus-like figure, you know, austere, into smiting, uh, you know, is, is going to, you know, ch- to uh, make a list and check it twice. And, and this is the God of, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's the God of, of American Puritanism. And there is a way in which this image of God, very austere, aloof and alone, is alive and, a well, and well today. But if there is a Zeus God, I think there is also a Dr. Seuss God, a kind of sentimental Santa Claus that also proliferates, maybe even more so today than the Puritan God, the the airwaves of of self-help, feel-good spirituality, where God is equally alone, but is kind of our buddy and, you know, can can help us have our best life now. And <laughs> what uh, and what we're what, what Father Richard and I are seeking to recover is this robust idea of of God who is one, but is a God who is one in diversity, that there's this unity within diversity, that God is community, a community of equals who is loved and esteemed and who is love. It's the the energies of love. You know, one of the things that we took some fire on, and I think we'll be talking about this later in, in some of uh, critical reviews, is that we focused more on the relationship between the Trinity, perhaps, than having this in-depth technical exposition of, you know, what who or what is the Father and who or what is the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're really emphasizing this dynamic that I think is highlighted in Scripture in, say, John 17, where Jesus talks about the, the flow and the relationship between the Father and Son and asks that this relationship be uh, extended to the believing community, to the friends of God, and that indeed this is like a, uh, this isn't John 17, but sort of like a, a hologram or a, um, a, like an avatar of all reality, that there's this, I'm with you, you're in me, we're in each other, they're within us, there's this flowing that happens, there's this cosmic language throughout Scripture about all things co-inhering through, you know, God in Christ and that God is the all and in all. And so when we're looking at this relationship between things, the interconnectedness between things, where that lands for me on a day-to-day level is that we're all connected. I'm connected to not only, you know, my family and my friends, but also my neighbors and my enemies, that we're all in this together. And an image of God who who is one and yet who is community, creating a, a world that is many in manifestation and yet is ultimately one. I think that's precisely the kind of image of God that we need today in our increasingly fragmented and contentious climate, especially, you know, right now in the United States. So I know that, like, I remember growing up in church and folks would always give me, like, the 
uh, little trite definitions on what the Trinity is. And, and I know some of our listeners may uh, be from church backgrounds. Many of them aren't as well. And so, what, I mean, I guess to un- first unpack this, when we speak of the Trinity, we're talking about God the Father, Jesus, um, and the Holy Spirit in those uh, ways. And so I've always been told these these little things that never completely made sense to me, you know, like you describe it like, um, like, you know, the shamrock, like you guys mentioned in the book, or <laughs> even like, you know, I'd heard, you know, it's, it's like thinking of God as like water or vapor or ice, you know, God in different forms. How would <clears throat> you, how would you explain this to a child? Cause we're both fathers. Um, yes. so how would you explain, how would you explain the Trinity in a succinct way to a child? Oh, wow. <laughs> Just starting with the, uh, the, the uh, easy questions I see, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, uh, before you added the child uh, zinger to the end, what I was <laughs> going to say is that, uh, you know, one way that I understand the development of the idea of the Trinity in within Christian history is that, you know, we start off in, in the New Testament with people who are basically really good Jewish folk, who are really good monotheists. As monotheists, they would, you know, recite as one of their most sacred prayers, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Like monotheism, there being one God and not polytheism is a major tenet of, um, you know, Judaism, Islam, and I would say Christianity. Mm -hmm. But Christians had a plot twist. The earlier, earliest Jesus followers said, whoa, you know, there's something here about Jesus that is clearly divine, that clearly reveals God to us. And, you know, interpreting their idea of, of the Greek logos, they began to say, this is actually, you know, the word of God come in the flesh. So there's this idea of divinity in Jesus that they're drawing on. And then they recognize that, you know, Jesus taught that there's this Holy Spirit of God that leads us into all power and insight and understanding and binds us all together. So somehow we believe in one God, and we, but we also recognize that this God is manifest as creator, as, as Jesus and as spirit. And you have some texts in the New Testament that confusingly enough have all three showing up at the same time, like in the baptism, uh, you know, where, where, John, where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And so it, it took several centuries for this to percolate and to, to work out. And it was a community of mystics, mystic theologians in uh, one of my ancestral homelands, Turkey and Cappadocia, where these early uh, Cappadocian fathers and mothers began to articulate the idea of, of Trinity encapsulating this one God who is also a God within relationship within God's self, within community. Mm-hmm. And the word they chose for this was perichoresis where we also get the root word of choreography, that it was a, a circle dance, hence the name of the book, A Divine Dance. Now, when I talk about Trinity with my nine-year-old daughter, who's really smart, uh, and actually, you know, we've had conversations for, for years because we used to be a part of a community in Raleigh that no longer exists called Trinity's Place. And so there was, you know, always some, some conversation about Trinity. I try not to over-analogize it because I do think all of those analogies are not only a bit clunky, but probably also heretical in ways that I don't fully understand. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we we talk about that uh, 
that yes, there there is this fellowship within God, and that that God shows the beautiful diversity uh, of of all of like you know between her and her friends, or between us and our family. That you know that we have this oneness in love and in relationship, and yet we are also different people, mm-hmm. and that in the same in the same way, or at least a similar enough way, uh, that is what shows up right in the heart of God as revealed through the lens of Trinity. That'll preach. Um, <laughs> with yeah, and so and so a lot like the book you're you're talking about this in terms of like the Trinitarian revolution, um, and yes. <laughs> so which is which is really just taking a, a large paradigm shift um, from kind of this, and I'll use some of your guys' words like this idea of the um, omnipotent monarch um, to like the you know ultimate participant in life. Can you can you speak a little to this shift in in ideology? Yes, absolutely. You know, again, going back to that Zeus archetype, I think that we, um, you know, we read that into scripture. There certainly are, um, you know, certain authors or strata within scripture who probably just frankly believe that, hold hold that view of the sovereign. But what's interesting, and I'm actually drawing a little bit on something I believe Brian McLaren mentioned several years ago, which is that, you know, even in scripture, when there is monarchical language toward God, that like that the image that the writers had in mind was, you know, perhaps a Davidic king or an Israelite king who was essentially like a an exalted tribal chieftain. Like he had power, but he was not absolute. When you get to the absolute monarchs like, you know, Louis of France and others later, they have like even massively more power than kings in biblical days. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to the sort of mechanized worldview starting in the 19th century, where things are increasingly becoming more efficient and and mechanized with the Industrial Revolution, and you get uh, the, oh, what is it called? The I forget if it's the rational work movement, when people start breaking down labor into how many you know minutes can be saved and they try to micromanage what people are doing in factories. To this point in time where in you know an Amazon factory, you have like 45 seconds for a bathroom break or whatever. Like they time everything out. And I feel like if you trace theology through this period, God becomes more and more that, becomes more and more this micromanager, this mechanized overlord who, you know, knows all and sees all and, and can, you know, snuff you out at the drop of a hat. It's kind of like the, the combination of the most, you know, absolute king plus an overseer in the, on the factory floor. And that is like a 180 degree opposite mm-hmm. of the God revealed in Jesus Christ. You know, I think that Jesus does use language of kingdom and of of God, for that matter, but uses it in very subversive ways and says that I do nothing save what I see my father doing. And then he tells us to do things like love our enemies and, you know, be kind to those who persecute us. That upends traditional, even for his day, images of fathers and kings and represents the vulnerability of God, the God who will turn the other cheek. And what we're saying is this is the God who is exemplified in Trinity, that the Trinity shows absolute deference toward one another, absolute submission and humility, but mutual submission to one another. And, you know, the, if, if you take, uh, I just recently posted on my blog, um, a remix of 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, because if we believe that 
that God is love, then probably what can be said about love in this famous passage that's read at weddings from Paul can be said about God. And I'll I'll just read it to you really quick. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. Hmm. To us, that is what is exemplified in the life of Trinity. Hmm. And you were speaking too, and, and I know that's it's it's a really interesting thing when we begin to talk about like the Bible and context and you know different periods of history. And so, like speaking to language. Um, can you talk a little about like the problematic um, areas when we begin to only like focus on male pronouns um, <laughs> when we speak of the Trinity? For sure. Yes. I mean, you know, it, this has been well trod by feminist theologians and other voices way more articulate than I. But, you know, as as uh, one feminist theologian famously quipped, when God becomes male, then male is God. And so, frankly, when we go back to these images and the effects that they have on us, when we're thinking of God in exclusively male terms, there's um, it's just very limiting in, in our imagination and our repertoire. If you ask anyone, is God literally biologically male? Everyone, or at least hopefully most everyone, will say, no, uh, not really. But then when you start to use feminine language for God in public prayers or worship, you know, people freak out. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when we see God, Trinitarian or otherwise, uh, in exclusively male terms, we're just limiting a lot of access to our shared humanity and to vital insights in the character and nature of God. If in Genesis it says, you know, that God created us in God's image, male and female, then there ought to be uh, some some profound theological reflection on on what that means. And there are, in fact, biblical images uh, for God that are feminine, not the least of which is uh, ruach, one of the you know Hebrew words for the spirit of God, which is a, a feminine word for God, a presence that gives life, breath, wind, inspiration. And so that's one of the reasons why my friend Paul Young, when he wrote The Shack nearly a decade ago, uh, depicted the, the Holy Spirit as Sarayu, as an Asian woman, uh, you know, showing this element of, of breath and feminine energy. And I think that it's valuable to to look at the feminine dimensions of, of all three persons of Trinity, if, if we wish, and, you know, that it is about the dynamism of relationality. And in a lot of ways, uh, relationality, at least stereotypically in our culture, is a more feminine domain. So I think we cut ourselves off from a whole lot when we neglect that. And so throughout the book that you, it seems that you and Richard are also pulling from a lot of like the traditions of Christian mystics. Um, and I just really want to know, like, what is the deal with you trying to go and mainstream the mystics? Because aren't they kind of like the spiritual hipsters of Christian, uh, the Christian tradition that we have here? <laughs> it's true. If they become too cool, then there's just no point in reading them anymore. I know. Huh? You're, yeah, you're kind of outing them uh, in a way that they may have not have wanted to. No, but um, – <laughs> But on that on that tent, because I do think I, I I do love the fact that you are bringing in like this whole um, it's kind of a chorus of voices that that aren't always heard, 
Um, <laughs> I, I think in like American Christianity type type circles. And so, how, I mean, how do you see that? Well, yes, yeah, speak to the importance of the voices of the mystics, especially in regards to experiencing the Trinity. Absolutely. You know, it, it was important to both Father Richard and I that what we're saying is grounded in this living tradition, this living lineage, that we're not just making stuff up. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it would be easy to say, oh, God is a dance. God is a flow. Like, that's just such hipster or hippie language. You must, you know, be a, a Southern California hippie. But in fact, when you, you know, look at the, the mystics from Meister Eckhart to John of Roysbrook to just so many voices, they attest to this experience of, of Trinity and of divine dance. And because they are more tied in to this felt sense dimension of spirituality, we felt like we should just let them speak for themselves and and illuminate what it is that we're talking about. Well, and when we begin to speak of um, experiencing God, and, and I see, I always love it when I'm reading books that yeah, that someone else uh, articulates something that I've kind of been thinking about, but they put it in a very succinct manner uh, or a much more eloquent manner than what is bouncing around in my head at the time. And so like in, in the book, you guys talk about really how the institutional church has framed knowledge of God kind of in a, like in a secondhand manner and how we pass it on to others. Like the folks, you know, for us to know about God, we have to go listen to a different expert, like a clergy pastor, all those. And when we begin to do that, we kind of uh, distance ourselves from really being able to kind of experience God on our own. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so what, what in your mind, what should, what should be our posture? What should be our approach towards experiencing God? Absolutely. You know, I, I have never been um, a Methodist, but I really do like the Wesleyan quadrilateral because I, I do think it's absolutely true that oftentimes we have a secondhand faith, a secondhand spirituality, and we we do pawn our own life and experiences off on others. I, I do think there's an opposite extreme, though, where we make our own particular pursuit of our own particular experience king. And I think that sometimes I see this in kind of pay-to-play, consumeristic, new age spirituality, for instance, where it's all about, you know, cultivating your own inner experience isolated from all else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, putting on my postmodern glasses for a minute, I don't think there's any such thing as an unmediated experience. I think every experience we have is mediated through language, through lenses of language and culture, et cetera, et cetera. So, I like the idea of the Wesleyan quadrilateral that says that our authority is located in, uh, oh, let's see, is it, uh, it's, it's reason, experience, uh, the, oh gosh. Scripture. Yes, scripture. There's, there's one more in the quad. <laughs> yes, there is one more in the quad. I'm just going to look it up right here and you can edit it or just make me look ignorant. I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, let's see. Dun, 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 dun. It's experience, it's reason, it's scripture, and tradition. That's what yes. it is. Yeah. 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 Tradition, reason, experience, and scripture. And so experience is in there. And, you know, some of the denominations that I grew up in uh, absolutely invalidated experience and said, no, there, we, we have to go by scripture and the creeds and there's nothing else. But I think when you have those four in a dynamic tension with each other, that's where the real juice happens. And so 
In the divine dance, I think we attempt to invoke tradition and reason and scripture mm. and through those lead one into one's own experience. And that's why we spend so much time in the back of the book with exercises that people can do alone and in groups where they can have their own experience of God as community within their human community. Hmm. And so when you begin to look at, especially, I mean, it's easy for us to, well, I spent half the time on the show bashing American Christianity. Um, but uh, I mean, and it's, it's an easy target in many ways, but like for us to sure. be able to do this in a non snarky manner, um, mm. what, like when you begin to look at this and especially, you know, as I was kind of, this is dredging up some stuff in my own, the back of my head going through this book, you know, what shift do you think the church needs? Um, like in, in the Western church, what shift does it need to really return more to our roots? Mm, just that question. <laughs> uh, well, I think, you know, a lot of folks are doing soul searching right now, especially in the wake of the most recent election, mm-hmm. where we have this phenomenon where roughly, give or take, half of America is rejoicing and half of us, and I will include myself unabashedly in the other half, are mourning and grieving and asking, mm-hmm. how did we get here? And the fact that those half of Americans that you know helped elect President-elect Trump uh, are proud evangelical Christians, proud conservative Christians, is to me very sobering and worth looking at. I am uh, rereading uh, Charles Marsh's uh, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer right mm-hmm. now and looking at the resistance that Bonhoeffer and the Confessing Church had to Hitler in his you know rise to power with the the dwindling days of the Weimar Republic you know before Hitler was Hitler with a capital H uh, you know there, he was like oh there's this dude and he has some extreme rhetoric uh, but you know he's probably not going to really enact all that extreme rhetoric and, and he's good for Christianity he's going to make Germany great again and <laughs> I think that uh, Bonhoeffer when he was exploring religionless Christianity mm-hmm. underground seminaries the discipline of the secret meaning to not godly proclaim faith, but to simply live it. And if people ask about what you're doing, you can kind of let them know, but almost returning to this idea of almost like an underground church meeting in catacombs. I think that my prediction is that we're going to see a resurgence of ideas around new monasticism that when you think about it, they were new monasticism as advanced by folks like Shane Claiborne, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, and others was really huge in the George W. Bush years uh, when there was, you know, what felt like this easy target to resist and kind of dwindled during the Obama years. It was sort of like, well, whatever, you know, things are getting incrementally better and maybe we don't need to like live our lives as acts of resistance anymore. Uh, and whether that was right or wrong, uh, I think what's happening now with an incoming Trump administration is that a lot of serious friends of God in the way of Jesus are saying, what in the world is happening here? And I think, you know, to circle back to a more succinct answer to your question, I think we're going to need to really discern as faith communities the inner and outer, the inner life and the outer witness that we want to have. And I think that there are some amazing resources available today, amazing people who are pioneering different ways of living out faith community that doesn't always look like the Sunday morning gathering. And there are people who are doing Sunday morning gathering in inspiring ways. So I I think of folks like 
Uh, Sarah Miles and Paul Fromberg with St. Gregory of Nyssa's out in San Francisco are also Mark and Lisa Scandrett mm-hmm. out in San Francisco who are, are you know doing some amazing work with faith and praxis. And I was interviewing Cynthia Bourgeau last week myself for a radio show that I'm participating in with Presence called The Convergence Network. And it's an interfaith radio show looking at the future of spirituality. And, you know, Cynthia is also one of my heroes right alongside Father Richard, you know, who's been a distance mentor to me. And I was, I was asking her a similar kind of question. And to my surprise, she said she felt like what churches needed to do was to strengthen their ex exoteric form, their external form, to be more accessible and more compelling. Like mm-hmm. She's like, get the basics of theology uh, in a way that are more interesting and have a better public witness. And that, yes, eventually that will be the on-ramp to lead people on the contemplative journey or the inward journey. But uh, you know, she was actually talking about thinking about intelligently strengthening the outward forms. So I, I do think it's a, pardon the pun, a dance between <laughs> what what are those external forms that will really serve our communities and and people who, you know, haven't previously in recent years felt the need for spiritual solidarity community, but probably will with this cultural shift. Mm-hmm. And then what is the intelligent inward journey to take where we have a transformation of the heart and a transformation of consciousness? Mm-hmm. And I think that folks like Father Richard and Cynthia and Jim Finley with the CAC's Living School are doing a fantastic job looking at that inward journey and helping bring a lot of people along on it. And when you talk, I mean, when you mention in this context, and I think it actually ties pretty nicely back into the book, you're talking about like change and transformation and what's needed. And I know one of the themes that you had in the book that was that's essential to the Trinity is this idea of vulnerability. Um, yes. is being able to step into this spot of vulnerability. And and so can you just kind of just briefly talk about like the vulnerability like that's at the core of the Trinity and also how that should hopefully change our posture and how we walk things out spiritually in the world we find ourselves in today. Absolutely. I think when we look at our sacred narratives, when we have, you know, a spirit that's hovering over the face of the deep, when we have a God who is dialogically engaged with the archetypal couple in the garden, when we have a God who rather than smiting enemies literally turns the other cheek and gives up the ghost in a state-sponsored execution, mm. we have this God who is making God's self vulnerable to us. Mm. This is not a God who stands like a, a distant watchmaker aloof from creation, but a God who dares to enter in to the very real pain and suffering. And I think that Oftentimes, um, from a philosophical lens, theists of all stripes are are left on the defensive when it comes to Mm -hmm. theodicy, the problem of evil, where is God when it hurts? And we're left holding the bag, kind of like, well, why doesn't God um, intervene in these sort of dramatic ways more often? And that's a really complex question, but I think that we're all still trying to hold to this Zeus-like being Mm -hmm. when actually our own source narrative says that, well, we, we don't see God always intervening in these miraculous ways, but we do see God coming to be with us in the midst of the pain Mm -hmm. Um, and the midst of the joy. You know, it's uh, anarchist uh, founder Emma Goldman said, I don't want to be a part of any revolution that doesn't have dancing. And (laughs) so I think that's the other 
aspect of vulnerability. Sometimes I think it's a little easier in our culture, at least in my context, to be vulnerable with pain. But sometimes being vulnerable with joy uh, can be even trickier. There's, you know, it's it's sort of like, oh, do we have, you know, the, the phenomenon of the humble brag? Like people get so critical when someone expresses success they've experienced or something they're really happy about because we don't want to be a bummer to our friends who might not be experiencing mm-hmm. uh, that level of joy. And so I think creating containers that are, are safe and generative for vulnerable experiences of both pain and joy are crucial for community formation. And so up until this point in the interview, this has been us talking about how wonderful the book is, uh, me throwing bouquets at you, but uh, not everyone um, is having it. Not everyone is is drinking from the cup and saying yum yum. Uh, when you begin, to, there are some, there's some um, out there. And um, my first question as we lead into this uh, why do you think uh, the Calvinists are such an angry, grumpy lot? Um, <laughs> what, what, what we tend to do is like, you know, it's we're talking about this divine dance. It's, you know, it's it kind of almost has like this metaphor of a party. And I feel like when you invite the Calvinists to the party, they're that guy that doesn't drink and just sits there quietly and judges everybody else at the party um, <laughs> that you start to say, you know, hey, what's up? Or even like with a I guess for a family metaphor, they're kind of just that obnoxious uncle that that is racist and, and political that loves to rant at you at Thanksgiving that you're like, yeah, you're in the family. But overall, geez, you really make Thanksgiving uncomfortable. So these guys, <laughs> we have the Calvinists kind of coming out because that's what they do. They love to throw people out uh, of the ship, uh, out of the party. And sometimes like, you know, I feel like the only way that I can identify like a Calvinist is just simply by the stem of the tulips sticking out of their asses. Um, <laughs> oh my. Is, so I said it, not you, so I can get in trouble for that. No, but, um, and so what you had happening with this book came out, a bunch of folks uh, are really loving on it, and then you get the Gospel Coalition, uh, which they love to do that, like Piper and that whole bunch, um, who also, which actually you should say that you're probably in good company, uh, because Piper was the one that said farewell to Rob Bell in the process. That's true. That's um, true. But so, yes, yeah, so they come to this whole process. They're kind of like, ah, and not happy with it because um, they are the party poopers of Christianity. Um, what do you think? Th- I mean, what do you think uh, they're, what are they missing? Maybe that's mm. my main question. What are they missing about this book? <laughs> sure. Well, and before I respond to your direct question, I, I want to hashtag this, not all Calvinists. Uh, you know, that's I, true, mean that's sincere- true. I, I mean, this sincerely, some of my, my best friends are Calvinists. Last night, I was actually having a wee hours chat with a friend of mine who has been reformed his whole life, conservative reformed. He's serving as a missionary overseas. And he reached out to let me know that he thought that the Gospel Coalition Review was terrible. He's like, mm-hmm. even if I might, at the end of the day, agree with some of those critiques. And he's like, I don't know. I haven't read the, your book yet. But I just want you to know that I thought that it was over the top, divisive, and and not cool. And I've had several reformed friends reach out to me and and say that. So I think it's the unfortunate situation where sometimes the loudest voices aren't necessarily representative of the whole. And at the same time, I think you know sometimes stereotypes exist because there is a kernel of truth in them. Yep. And I did spend you know several years in a PCA context, a conservative Presbyterian context, and 
yeah, I I was introduced to sort of cynicism, theological cynicism and negativity for the first time when I entered into the PCA world as a teenager. Before that, I was probably in the opposite extreme. I was assemblies of God, happy, clappy. We were all just so <laughs> enthusiastic, you know, the Enneagram sevens of Christianity. Uh, so maybe I needed a little dose of that snark. But uh, I do think that the ways in which it is weaponized by the Reformed community, at least a lot of its loudest voices, mm-hmm. is problematic. And I think it, its primary reasons is that it has a cognitive bias. So it, it's biased towards, you know, the right way of stating things, whatever right means in this context, is the way that in some ways like theology is doxology, which I, I think probably everyone believes that like our, what we believe about God is in a way a form of worship. But for them, it's, it's almost like, you know, the words spoken are the primary mediator of worship and worth. And so if you get the words wrong, quote unquote, it's like a dire error. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, life is on the line, which I don't fully understand given they're also bent towards predestination. Like Mm -hmm. what harm does it do if, if my book is just encouraging the reprobate to be more reprobate, (laughs) aren't I doing the Lord's work as the, you know, the piece of clay that's being thrown away by the potter? Uh, I don't know, but I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, I summarized it a little bit. I'm actually just going to read it because I, I wrote a response to the Gospel Coalition review, which is also worth noting is not itself written by um, a Calvinist, oddly yes, enough. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually reached out a little bit to Fred Sanders, who wrote the review, who's a Wesleyan um, Arminian dude. I guess their <laughs> Gospel Coalition is not as exclusive a club as I thought it was. I guess the enemy of their enemy is their friend. Mm-hmm. But um But yeah, so I think at the end of the day, what the difference is in approach, the reason why it has um, struck this nerve with certain reviewers is, um, um, sorry for making edit. Okay, so I think that it makes total sense that a cognitive-based, hierarchical, substance-oriented Calvinist approach to Trinity would be at odds with an apophatic, social, and process-oriented and Franciscan approach. And I'll I'll break that down. So, you know, the sort of cognitive hierarchical approach, a lot of um, Calvinists would say that their favored theological lens for the Trinity is the monarchical Trinity, emphasizes that the Father's on top, Son subservient to the Father, the Spirit subservient to the Son. It it makes the Trinity about hierarchy. And, you know, I don't usually throw this word around very much, but I actually think that that view might be heretical. Uh, in fact, there's there was a big hubbub this past summer when Wayne Grudem, uh, who also famously endorsed Trump and then did an about-face, but then did an about-face again, uh, said, hey, hierarchical trinity is where it's at, and our complementarian view of male supremacy is rooted in the hierarchical trinity. Mm. And there were a lot of moderate evangelicals who said, no, actually, that is not in the creed. That is not in uh, the Trinitarian theology. That is actually a heretical view. But I think within Calvinism, you do have folks who are into that, you know, sort of top-down model. And they're very much into the roles that each person plays in the Trinity. So they've got, (laughs) it's almost like pinning a butterfly to a 
to a board, they, they can examine apparently what the father does and how that's different than what the son does and how that's distinct from what the spirit does. And so everything has to be neatly and in order and subordinated. And, you know, writing, I'm, I'm not Roman Catholic, but Father Richard is, and we're both drawing on this contemplative tradition that's very Catholic and Orthodox in a lot of its manifestation. There's a more, what's known as the apophatic approach, which says that, or negative theology, which says that God is so vast and unnameable that whatever we say about God is inherently limited mm-hmm. and even in some sense wrong, that there's just a lot that transcends category. And so in some ways, the less said, the better. So we draw on the apophatic lineage of mysticism. We also draw on the social trinity, and the social trinity emphasizes what I believe is the biblical emphasis of the equality of the members of the trinity, the mutuality of the members of the trinity, the vulnerability, and that we're process-oriented. I mean, I don't know that the book would be capital P, Process Theology, but this idea of, of a relational God who makes God's self vulnerable to creation, who is perhaps an outsized player in the, the dance of reality, but is also including you know creatures and cosmos within this play, and that we can all genuinely influence each other, hmm. and a Franciscan approach, the Franciscan approach, which emphasizes incarnation more than crucifixion, that emphasizes, you know, the presence of God in all things, especially in nature and the natural world, that there's this culture clash that inherently is happening when we're writing a book from this perspective and folks that are in a very different context look at it. It's like speaking two different languages. It's like mm-hmm. oil and water. Well, and what ends up happening too is is folks kind of in, uh, in that arena of thinking, I guess you could say, um, tend to prefer like a, a and they would just, I mean, anyone can pull apart the statement, but kind of a small controllable God, you know, a God that we kind of know everything we know, uh, how big, how small, how wide, you know, versus this idea kind of, of this broad, um, unknowable mystery, um, aspect yes. of God, you know? And so it's kind of that knowing versus being own, you know, being comfortable with, uh, mystery as well too. Cause I think mystery can make a lot of folks uncomfortable, um, Indeed. because you can't pin it down and you can't. Uh, quantify it. Um, but I would also just go as far to say that would, you know, if we have a God that we already know absolutely everything about, it would be kind of a small God, um, in the midst (laughs) of that. Um, and I won't, and I'll move on from this, but I will, I will note that when you were using to, uh, some terminology to describe some of these folks, uh, in their mindset, I was hearing that, are you telling me, and actually don't answer this because it's absolutely stupid and rhetorical. Um, but you were using words like Dom and sub and role-playing to describe the whole Calvinist outlook on everything like that. Um, (laughs) I said that not Mike. So if anyone wants to get mad at me for all the comments I've, I've, I've vaulted, uh, over at our Calvinist (laughs) brothers and sisters uh take it out on me not him and uh and most of this is spoken in grand hyperbole also um so moving on from that no no comment there i I will say that you know my my calvinist friends would probably say that you have it precisely backwards that we are the ones with the small god because we have conformed god to a cultural image of inclusion that ignores the rough edges of of a god who absolutely has the right to judge uh you know humanity along the lines that happen to agree with the ways in which Calvinists like to judge humanity. 
to which I would only say that, you know, the scripture that is often invoked in these sorts of debates or articulations about God, that my ways are higher than your ways, says God, that the, the original context in that is actually God pardoning uh, and, and forgiving and reconciling, mm-hmm. that the higher ways of God that are actually mind-blowing are ways in which God is more kind and generous than we are. And so as Father Richard and I say in the book, our idea of mystery is not that God is unknowable, but God is infinitely knowable. Mm. There's always more to learn. And the reason I ultimately left Reformed uh, theology is because I felt like I basically knew the broad outlines of it by the time I started college. And I knew that I could spend a lifetime mining the, the particularities of, of that system, but it was a closed system. It, it stifled curiosity and it stifled empathy and open-heartedness, and I just couldn't survive there. Well put, way more eloquent uh, than what I was going for in the midst of this. I appreciate this. So we're going to hit a lightning round. Not really that lightning, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, applying this idea of the Trinitarian revolution. So how, how does all of this speak to, and I'll give you different topics and you can 30 seconds or so on this. Um, okay. Trinity and racism. Trinity and racism. Um, again, idea of unity within diversity. I think that some earlier clumsy attempts to, uh, to mitigate racism came from well-meaning white folks who said, I don't see color. And one, that is factually untrue. And two, even if it could be done, that's an erasure of identity that is actually another form of racism or violence to say, I don't see this other culture, this other color, this other hue and way of being. And Trinity is a beautiful lens to me of saying, you know, in the classical formulation, the father is not the son, the son is not the spirit. And yet there is this unity. And so we do have shared humanity, common humanity, and there are distinctions, there are differences, and those differences are beautiful. And that is what Trinity shows us. Okay, so from racism, now politics. (laughs) Politics. um, Again, everything belongs to steal a phrase from Father Richard. We talk in the book about the law of three, and uh, I'll just do a really quick and dirty version right here. This will be longer than 30 seconds, I apologize. In uh, in Hegelian dialectics, which tends to be the underpinnings of our dualistic consciousness in the West, we see everything in this sort of zero-sum game opposition. We have this thesis that comes out, we have an antithesis that opposes it with all its might, and the best we can hope for is some kind of compromise or synthesis. Well, there's a different metaphysic, a ternary metaphysic that's not based on dualism, that's known as the law of three. And the law of three comes from another uh, Turkish teacher, Turkish-Russian teacher, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, who is also known for popularizing the Enneagram. And Gership would say that there's this law of three that says there is a holy affirming force, a holy denying force, and a holy reconciling force. Mm-hmm. And this is different than a Hegelian dialectic because holy affirming could be advancing something. It's a values neutral term. You know, we could say that Trump is in the holy affirming position, advancing his vision to make America great again. And then we have a holy denying that is, say, the activist community, the progressive community, the sane human community that says, what the heck, we're not going to stand for this, we are going to oppose it. Now, in a Hegelian system, that's all there is, and maybe they would work out some kind of bloody compromise. But in a law of three, there's also a holy reconciling force, a novel force that springs up, something that no one can anticipate, that shows a third way thinking where there wasn't previously a way to imagine a path out. 
and we're still waiting on it in this case, I believe. Uh, Unfortunately, I cannot debut to you right now with the Holy Reconciling Forces and our current political climate. But what's important to note is that this third force does not um, take sides. It actually, in some ways, maybe validates the best in these other opposing forces. And so, for instance, there are a lot of poor working class white folk who had good reasons to want to change and who wanted and therefore they decided for whatever reason to elect Trump. And so this third force says that everything belongs. There is a creative way out of this. We're all in this together. No one is ultimately irredeemable or demonizable. And so we spend a little more time on the law of three in the book. But if you really want a master class, then I'd recommend checking out Cynthia Bourgeau's book, The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three. Mm. What about, um, let's hit the environment through the lens of Trinity. The environment through the lens of Trinity. Well, you know, if we look at Trinity as creator, redeemer, and sustainer of life, if we see this inherently panentheistic view of Trinity as a God who transcends but includes all of creation and all of reality, then when we disrespect the earth, we're not only disrespecting our planet, we're disrespecting a vital aspect of the body of God. And... We're, we're harming ourselves in a very real way. You know, I, I love how um, certain ecological theologians like Brian Swim and Bruce Sanguin put it. They say, you know, even from a physical sciences perspective, our current model of the universe, the, what the so-called Big Bang, everything emerges from a singularity. There's this one point of reality or matter that contains all there is, and then it expands outward in every direction. At what point does it cease to become one? It is still one thing in this dizzying diversity of manifestation. And to me, that is also Trinity, (laughs) one God in this diversity of manifestation. And when we recognize that, of course, a triune God would create a triune universe, so to speak, then how we take care of our world suddenly becomes a lot more personal. Hmm. And so I have one last question for you that has nothing – well, it has to do with the book, but not really at all. And so I like to throw in these random questions that um, you may not have an answer for, but I want you to give a stab at this one. So okay. uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, he wrote the foreword for the book, okay? Sure. So uh, there is – I've seen the trailer. There is a Shack movie coming out. Not it's Shaq, true. Not Shaquille O'Neal new movie. This isn't like, you know, Kazam 2. This is the movie based on the book, The Shack. Um, <laughs> it has, when we begin to look at this, one, can you name any decent Christian films? <laughs> oh, man. I feel like, I feel like the answer to that is yes. There's this go-to movie where I'm like, wow, that's a surprisingly good Christian film. It's not fireproof. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, the, the, the answer is right now, no, I can't because I'm okay. not remembering what I was thinking okay. of. Because I think mo- most movies like that end up hinting at like aspects of faith and, and Christianity and spirituality do so very well, but they often do it by accident. You know, I think the intentional ones that you'd label a Christian film uh, right. ends up being a steaming pile of stuff. Um Yes. So do you have true. hope? And again, this is not an endorsement. This is no knock against uh, William Young. Have, are, do you have any hope for a movie, the Shack movie that is coming out? 
Yes, I do have hope. Okay. You know, I haven't seen the film yet, obviously, but um, I think that, you know, no one was more um, potentially skeptical about the possibility of a Shaq movie being horrible than Paul. Okay. <laughs> and my understanding from chatting with him is that uh, he's been really happy with how Lionsgate has taken the movie and the direction it's taken it in. And so my hope is that it will be a you know beautiful translation of the book for even more people to engage in. That said, there are many different artistic modes of, of interpreting a book. And, uh, you know, I think that a movie is only one of those. And so it'll be interesting to say, see as the years go on if there are other interpretations of the book as well. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is The Divine Dance by Richard Rohr and Mike Morell. And I want to kind of end all of this with how you guys ended the book. And I don't think this is anything that's a spoiler, but when you were talking about really just the shift of how we embrace the Trinity, you said, uh, as we embrace that, it says, suddenly this is a very safe universe and you have nothing to be afraid of. God is for you. God is leaping towards you. God is on your side, honestly, more than you are on your own. So Mike, thank you for your time. Uh, for those out there, if they want to find out more information, I understand. I know the books on Amazon; it's in book retailers everywhere. If people want to track you down in the uh, internet landtopia out there, where how can they find you? Yes, absolutely. So, um, first of all, if you want a one-stop shop for the book, thedivinedance.org is a beautiful site that was designed for the book. It has you know a lot of background information. If you want to look me up specifically, I would love it if you visit me on my blog at mikemorell.org. Not uh, .com or .net. Those are a uh, insurance agent and a Republican state uh, lawmaker, respectively. I don't think the CIA, CIA Mike Morrell, has his own website that I'm aware of. It's probably but, better uh, he doesn't, but yeah. <laughs> if, yes, yes. If, but if you go to uh, MikeMorrell.org, and in fact, um, I've created a very personal bonus chapter of The Divine Dance that I'm giving away on my blog. It's where I tell more of my own story about this profound Trinitarian experience that I had several years ago that inspired me to collaborate on this book with Father Richard. So if you go to mikemorell.org forward slash bonus chapter, you can download that chapter in its entirety. It's exclusive material. There's also some exclusive exercises in the bonus chapter that are not in the regular book. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks for the for all the work I know you did with this book. Thank you for your time today. It is a pleasure to have you, and hopefully we'll have you back on uh, sometime soon. I'd love to, Stuart. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks so much. Well, that's it for the show this week. Just a reminder that as we end this broadcast that you can always catch us on podcast at www.snarkyfaith.com. You can also check us out on Twitter and Facebook. And that's all I got, and I will see you again next week. Later. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen, a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.